Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Jens Nelson. And I'm Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So, wanted to get this out of the way first and foremost. We only have a couple of days left on our giveaway. I think this is dropping on Friday. You have until Sunday. So you have like two more days, everybody, to get in on our giveaway. And if you didn't see, we added a third book. So we've already talked about the other two, uh, uh, Baptists in the Christian tradition and then Anglicanism. Uh, We've added a Gavin Ortland book, one that we've mentioned quite a few times called... uh, even uh, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. It's a really good book. We thought it'd be really pertinent uh, as, you know, it's something we talk about a lot, but it, it pertains to both of our books in a sense. So make sure to get on, get in on that action. Uh, you can find it on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, make sure you enter by liking, subscribing, sharing, all of that. All the details are in the post. Uh, so without any further ado, we're continuing our little mini segment within Christians of history, looking within our own particular traditions. So I've been sharing about some Baptist theologians and, and Christians. Lucas has been talking about Anglicans. So he's going to continue today by talking about Lancelot Andrews. All righty. Uh, so I guess we'll just get started. Uh, Andrews was born in 1555, uh, most likely in the parish of All Hallows in Barking. Um, this was the year of Bloody Mary's persecution against Protestants. So kind of an interesting time to to be born. Obviously, he wouldn't necessarily have any memories of that time, but uh, it is kind of an interesting historical note as he will go on to be very significant within the, the, the Protestant Church of England. From an early age, his intellectual prowess was, was abundantly clear it's pretty remarkable some of the things that i mean not just him like i feel like this happens a lot when you read about uh like medieval and and six, 15 1600s like people uh but uh we'll see he he was uh quite the quite the scholar even as a child uh in uh first he attended cooper's school and then when he was around 10 uh right around 1565 uh he went to merchant taylor's school uh, which was at the time headed by a fairly harsh schoolmaster, I think I would describe it as, and, and a really rigorous curriculum. To give you an idea, um, I will just read a paragraph from a biography I, I was reading on Lancelot Andrews that kind of describes what the students were expected. Um, and remember, he, he started at this school when he was 10. <laughs> um the students were, uh, they, they had to declaim from memory upon some moral or political question chosen by the master or his deputy. This was to be done in Latin and Greek, and the declamation was also to be written out in their own hand, one of the qualifications being ability to write fair. They had also to compose Latin and Greek verse, um, or Latin and Greek verse epigrams on some biblical subject to write them out and put them on the college screens before dinner. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm... I'm learning Greek right now. It's not fun. <laughs> it's hard. Um, but I certainly am not going to be uh, declaiming in Latin and Greek on some moral or political question. <laughs> um, so this is, you know, kind of just 
a remarkable, you know, a sign of a different time, I guess. <laughs> but not only was his curriculum really rigorous, but he himself was something of a of a you know a scholar as a student. He was he had an extreme commitment to study, which characterized both his life as a student growing up, and then also continued to characterize his time when he was was grown up when he was a bishop. Um, and and while he was a bishop, he would he would wake up in the morning and uh, do. Uh, his morning prayers, and then he would study until lunch. And then he would spend about two or three hours talking with people or dealing with various church affairs. And then he would go back to studying until he went to bed. <laughs> um, and obviously, that's quite a commitment. Um, and it, it definitely paid off in terms of his abilities. One example of his scholarship and, and just his natural intelligence, but obviously his uh, commitment uh, that allowed him to reach this level of scholarship is with this linguistic skill. He was credited with knowing at least 15 languages, including the obvious, you know, Greek, Latin, Hebrew, as well as Syriac, Arabic, and Chaldee, <laughs> which, uh, you know, things like Syriac and Arabic, like I, I, I got to imagine was just, even for the scholars of the time, was probably not super typical for, for people in England, you know, like the world was much more difficult to travel. There was a lot less, you know, just, I, I have to imagine there was a lot less chance to, to learn different languages from places that are not near you. If they're not languages like Hebrew or Greek that are, that are commonly used in, in study of, of scripture and theology and stuff. So that kind of gives you an idea of his, his temperament and just his, not only, like I said, not only his intelligence, but also just his, his habits and commitment to, to developing um, his his scholarly skill. Um, so he would go on in, in 1601, um, so jumping a bit in time, he, he would go on to become the dean of the Collegiate Church of St. Peter at Westminster, um, where he would, he would that kind of is, is the, the, the first like significant start on his, you know, church career. Um, in, in 1603, this is kind of interesting, in 1603, Queen Elizabeth died and James I became king. So if you, if you remember, or maybe you don't know, James, James, James the first was James the sixth of Scotland. He was king of Scotland. And when he, he was, he was James the sixth of Scotland. And then he was made king James the first of England. And on his way from Scotland to London to be crowned king, um, he was kind of like intercepted on the way by some Puritans who had a, a petition. Uh, basically, they wanted him to abolish certain what they called superstitious practices that were in the church, including the sign of the cross in baptism, um, exchanging rings at weddings, using the terms priest and absolution, and, and, and also some other, some other requests they had. Um, so the king did actually sort of like hear this. He, he presided over a conference, you know, kind of think like a, almost like a mini version of Constantine at Nicaea kind of thing. He called basically a conference of, of church leaders and theologians and on both sides, Puritans as well as the established Church of England to to debate these things um, and, and he presided over it and, and Andrews was part of that. Um, what's significant about this conference is it was at this conference that King James agreed to produce a new English translation of the Bible. And he asked Lancelot Andrews, along with 46 other people, to, to, to be the translators. Um, 
and they were assigned to uh, six different subcommittees that each worked on a section of the translation. Um, Lancelot Andrews was was the chairman of one of those committees, uh, and his was the one that was handling Genesis through Second Kings. You might have heard of this translation as it is the King James translation. It is the authorized version of the Bible that King James authorized to be produced in English. Um, so kind of cool. Um, I think a lot of you know, independent, fundamental, KJV-only people might remember that the KJV is an Anglican document, but that's fine, whatever. Um, <laughs> Lancelot Andrews would, would go on to be made Bishop of Ely, and then Bishop of Chichester, and then eventually Bishop of Winchester. Um, and there's, you know, it's like, I, I, I was kind of scrambling to, to figure out what to talk about. Um, I kind of feel like this is one of those Christians of history where I, I, I don't know how good a job I've done of really capturing the, what's important. I've kind of tried to look for what's important. I didn't have as much time as I wanted to um, to devote to this this week. And and so I feel like I, I'm kind of just scratching the surface of, of Lancelot Andrews. But one thing that was interesting about sort of his 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 time as, as or some of the things he got up to while he was Bishop of Winchester is um, he produced a couple of visitation articles. Um, so I'm not sure if he personally went around and visited different churches or if he was more kind of just getting a, a lay of the land from from different clergy and, and assistants or, or whatever. But in these articles, they, you know, he, he talks about things that are going on and they kind of demonstrate his, his opposition to, to Puritanism and different Puritan practices that were developing that he was, as bishop, trying to kind of root out of the church, um, which kind of is a good transition to his significance uh, in terms of theology and why one of the reasons he's remembered all these centuries later um, as a pretty significant person in the in the development of the Church of England and the history of the Church of England and what would later become Anglicanism as a sort of broader global movement. Um, he really is one of the big figures who contributed um, to distinctive, a, a distinctive theology of the Church of England, um, as opposed to just being Roman Catholic, being uh, generally Reformed. At, this was a time after the Reformation in the, you know, the generation or so, after the actual reforms being implemented in the church, when the theology was developing its its own unique and distinct identity, um, names like John Jewell, Bishop John Jewell, he wrote the famous Apology for the Church of England, is sort of like the big kind of watershed start, like the foundation. And and Lancelot Andrews was was one of those uh, churchmen and theologians who would go on to sort of contribute to that. Um, that building of a distinctive theological identity for the Church of England. Um, he wrote in opposition to both Calvinism on one side, critiquing their um, their church discipline and, and their ecclesiastical structure especially, and also Roman Catholicism on the other side, and, and instead asserted um, an quote-unquote, it's a little anachronistic, but a quote-unquote Anglican position for the Church of England that was distinct, um, and in his view, and in the view of many who have followed in his tradition, based on the, the foundation of the early church, um, he has a, a very famous quote that I've heard 
in multiple places, and I, I, I didn't know it was, it was actually from Lancelot Andrews, um, which kind of shows the, the quote's kind of gone on bigger than him. But he claimed that the teachings of the Church of England were based on, quote, one canon reduced to writing by God himself, two testaments, three creeds, four general councils, five centuries, and the series of father in that period. The centuries, that is, before Constantine and two after, determined the boundary of our faith. So this very patristic-minded, very Catholic, early church focus became um, a real popular thing in, in Anglican theology to, to point back to the early church as the source and the boundary markers of theology rather than simply the, the Roman magisterium or the writings of the reformers or, or whatever it might be but linking up with the, the early church. Um, and that really, I think, is, is one of his most significant theological contributions to, to sort of um, put forward that identity for and of the Church of England um, in the face of a pretty tumultuous time of, in the world and also just in, in Western Europe dealing, still trying to figure out and dealing with the Reformation and the different Reformed groups um, and uh, the responses to Rome that they were all offering, um, creating a, a, a unique and distinct one for the Church of England and, and the churches that would um, come from, from that church. Um, one work of Lancelot Andrews that um, is, is his, his most significant, or maybe not his most significant, but, but in the sense of like theology, but his most famous and I think most significant in terms of its influence and its reach um, are the private prayers of Lancelot Andrews. At least that's, that's the title that, that I typically see in English. Um, and the reason I say in English is because he wrote it in Greek and Latin, of course, because why wouldn't he? But it was, it's basically um, pri- literally just private prayers and devotions that he kind of compiled and put together for his own personal use. Um, that He didn't ever intend them to be published. Um, most of it isn't original. It's more him arranging um, scripture and quotations from the fathers and things like that and kind of putting them in, um, in order to be used for, for personal prayer and devotion. Um, they've been translated into English and kind of arranged in a, in a nice way. And, um, it, I, I was, I was flipping through and, and kind of reading through some of these prayers earlier today. And, and it, it's, they're really, they're really, really good. <laughs> um, there's, there's things for, for daily prayers, morning and evening prayers, um, before communion, before preaching, confession, intercession and Thanksgiving. It's just, it's pretty wide ranging. It's it's steeped in scripture. Like I was reading a page where it was just like the whole page was just like a list of things that he was uh, um, praying for that all had little scripture references afterwards. It's just like quotes just from the Bible, just smushed together and just being prayed. Um, it is said that you know after he died, his his stack of papers of of these private devotions, the the private prayers of Lancelot Andrews. Um, the, the pages were like stained with his tears um, because he was so just devotion, devotionally and passionately invested in, in his in his prayers. And, and like I said, these weren't even intended by him to be, you know, 
published and produced as a prayer book, but it, it is, I mean, like this, I, I have, I, I got it from the library. It's a, it's a 1957 edition of it from uh, SCM Press. Uh, it's, it's, it's small, it's thin, it, it's really light. I'm going to, I'm going to take it to church tomorrow and, and pray the, the prayer before and after receiving communion because um, they're just really, really beautiful prayers. But um, I would say I'm excited to, to like read through the rest of this little book of prayers. And I would say that if, if you're interested in Lancelot Andrews, like I think getting an idea of just his, his, his passion and his heart for, and his devotion to the Lord um, through this little collection of private prayers would probably be the best place to start. It's definitely where I'm starting. Um, and um, yeah, so that's sort of a, an overview of Lancelot Andrews and some of, some of what he's known for um, and what he contributed. Um, like I said, I, I feel like I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. There's just, he, he's a really, he's a pretty famous figure. So there's a lot to find on him, which is great. Um, and so I would definitely encourage you to, to dive deeper than what I've shared here. Um, but, but even if not, just definitely, definitely check out the private prayers of Lancelot Andrews. I'm sure, um, I'm sure you can find cheap copies. It, it seems like one of those books that is just kind of all over the place. Um, so anyway, yeah, Lancelot Andrews. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting, even some of the overlap between, um, you know, Thomas Helwes and Lancelot Andrews and both living in England uh, during the same time period. It's just interesting to, to look back at history and see some of the major figures. So thank you, Lucas. Uh, and, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Doxology podcast. Uh, if you'd like to connect with us, and we encourage you to, because there's only a couple days left on our giveaway. Don't miss out. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast, or you can email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We always welcome feedback, questions, episode ideas, and whatever else you want to throw our way. Uh, make sure to sign up for our newsletter down below in the description of this episode. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, be safe, and we'll see you.